The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 130. We actually have our friend Ruth Patton here, and she is going to read Psalm 130 out of Psalms for Young Children. This is a kid's version of Psalm. You ready, Ruth? Come on. You can take your mask off. When I have done something wrong, I wait for I wait for God you to forgive me, God. I am so sure you will comfort me. I believe in you, God, for even more than I believe that tomorrow will come. Psalm 130. Thank you, Ruth. You can stay up here for just one second. And Psalm 130 out of the adult version of the Bible says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul awaits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you all so much. Well, um... Sports are kind of back, right? I was just talking to somebody about this. Um, that it's like great to have them, but it's weird to have like virtual fans or cardboard cutouts. We've been watching a lot of baseball. It the most, feels like the most normal uh, of all of them. But the, one of the things I miss the most is the walk-up music. Like they ha- they're pumping in, you know, fan noise, but I'm missing the walk-up music. I don't know about y'all. Because the walk-up music to me it, it, it kind of gets you fired up for each individual player on the team, the guys that you love to watch, you know, and, and, and it says so much about them. <clears throat> it's that song that kind of gives them a little identity when they walk up, and, and of course, they've picked it because that's something they identify with. I love it. My, my uh, 10-year-old son uh, also wishes, I'm sure, sometimes he had some walk-up. We even had some tournaments recently uh, with... Uh, 10U baseball and like somebody brought speakers and they're playing walk-up music for their 10, 9 and 10 year olds, you know, uh, hilarious. But we love it because we want a song that we identify with, right? We want a song that really connects to us. Some of us may, it may be a wedding song, maybe a college song, maybe uh, something else that we've heard that we missed. A song that really strikes us different than other ones. You know, it's maybe you have that uh, I mean, you have your Spotify playlist or whatever, but it's always that one or two from a certain album that's poured into that playlist that you love. You don't, typically, most of us don't have whole albums anymore. We're like pulling off and, and to the chagrin and detriment sometimes of the music industry. We're take picking and choosing on the iTunes of what we want. But the reason is, is because we pick a song that we think identifies with us. This psalm is one of those psalms and what's called a set list, if you want to call it that, <clears throat> in, the, in the whole book, which is called the Psalms, in the Bible, which is actually an entire book written of songs in the Bible. 
in Psalms 120 through 134 were a set list, a set list drawn out almost that were called the Psalms of Ascent. These were Psalms that people would pit, they would sing on their way as they took a pilgrimage from wherever they lived, somewhat even 90 miles away on foot to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. That the Jewish people would do that. People would, that worship God would make that journey. And there were certain psalms, I'm sure, that struck them more than others. Imagine them singing this one. I love the kids' version. When I have done something wrong, I wait for you to forgive me, God. And singing that on their way. This particular one struck several people in history as their favorite song, their walk-up. This was Martin Luther's walk-up song, if you want to call it that. This was the one that when he wanted so much so people to identify with him or what he wanted to identify with the Lord, this was the psalm that he picked. That he wrote a, a, a hymn, a song on the song. The irony of that, if you think about it. He wrote a hymn about the song of the Psalms, right? Because it was the song that so tuned his heart. Remember we talked about in Confession, that line, sing your truth over us. What is the song for you? <clears throat> that sings truth over you. Now, I don't mean just from the Bible. I, I mean, what is the song that you think of? And, and here's what's beautiful about this psalm. I pray as we look at this psalm, it is straightforward. He, Martin Luther called it the Paulines. It was one of his favorite ones because it talked about the God. It just straight up said, here's forgiveness. I need it. I'm in the depths. I recognize my sin. I need your mercy. It's just the gospel. I love Micah Edmondson, our new um, location pastor, says this often when he begins a sermon. He says, are you ready for the gospel? <laughs> Here it is. This is it. Simple, true, beautiful. Let this song, as we look and walk through it, be one that sings over you the truth again of just the simple gospel that we're sinners and his mercy is more. And there are two parts to this, this psalm that we're gonna look at, it's divided in half. Again, it's so sweet when God just kind of lays it out for us. The first four verses really talk about fear and forgiveness. <clears throat> and the second half, verses five through eight, talk about waiting and redemption. Fear and forgiveness and waiting and redemption. And when the psalm begins, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, it is right in your face of someone who's crying out in desperation, someone who's crying out to God from a deep place, not just a, not just a, I've done something wrong, but a really deep place of being connected to something black, dark, wrong in their heart. Those moments when you actually see yourself for what you really are, and you just kind of go, oh, when you've measured it, and it's not just something, oh, I messed up here, I made a mistake here. It's an actual depth of you seeing yourself and going, that is something that I can't remove. And it feels weighty. In fact, the language for out of the depths is <clears throat> language that refers to deep and dangerous waters. It's actually the, the language of the Hebrews, deep and dangerous waters. Uh, when I was able to go on vacation earlier in the summer, thankfully was able to go to the beach, one of the restful places for <clears throat> me and our family. And my brother-in-law and I got this, you know, great idea at, you know, middle age that, hey, let's swim out to the second sandbar. You ever heard that, you know? 
I, I feel like that's thrown out every time you go to the beach. Let's go to the second sandbar. Or you see the second sandbar, right? So you go to Florida in particular, and there's this beautiful, you know, clear water. And then there's this dark area, and then another kind of lighter area behind it, right? There's a sandbar there. And then you're going to, at the beginning, there's a lot of sand. It shows it's shallow. There's darkness. And then there's this second layer of where the, the water goes shallow. We could, it's called the second sandbar, right? We go, hey, let's swim to the second sandbar. Well, we get out <clears throat> and we start swimming and definitely are not made to do this. We get out not even too, uh, really much further than the first area off the beach where it's like lighter. And we're like, what are we doing? And I'll tell you, when you get to that darkness before the second sandbar, everything just goes pitch black. And I've watched Shark Week. It starts tonight, by the way. I'm a huge Shark Week fan. This is not a good area for me to, to swim in because that's all I'm thinking of. When I'm swimming out there, I'm looking into this pitch black water and I'm thinking, whoa, I can't see a thing. There's no sunlight coming through. That means it's just super deep. And I can't see the bottom. Even if I kayaked out there, it's still deep enough. I still can't see the bottom of it until I get to that second sandbar. These were a people, when they mentioned this language, they were a land-bearing people. They did not love the water. In fact, they were reminded often of the beginning of the Bible when the waters were chaotic and unruly. And the first thing God does in Genesis, the very beginning of your Bible, if you read it, God tames the chaotic waters. And to them, it was still chaotic. That darkness, that looking into it to say, this is something mysterious and dangerous and deep here that I, I'm out of my depth. And it gives us a great understanding of, you know those feelings you get when you feel, whether it be emotionally or maritally or vocationally or in any other way, you feel the weight. You feel the depth of your own heart and even the things around you pressing in. It's a darkness. It's deep. And as it says, O oh Lord, hear my voice. You just hope, Lord, from these depths, would you hear me? Hear my, my voice, my pleas for mercy. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? Who can stand? <clears throat> who could stand? Marking iniquities was a, a bookkeeping term. It meant, actually, especially for you CPAs out there, people who are uh, good at this kind of thing, you know bookkeeping. And maybe you're one of those executives that know this. Bookkeeping is big. Imagine the marking of iniquities was a bookkeeping term of all the sin, all of the, the misdeeds, as, as Martin Luther wrote it differently, the misdeeds that you have done written on parchment, just laid out in front of you. Imagine Instagram in reverse. All the posts that you wish you didn't post or wouldn't want to post about who you really are, about your misdeeds. Imagine if Instagram was like that, how scary that would be. It's all there posted and it doesn't leave. And you can't take it down. And it's interesting when it says, oh Lord, who could stand because... I was really looking at that, and as I looked, and if you have, um, some of you may use a Bible on your phone. Sometimes that can really help, uh, or a Bible that has references. If you look at that particular area, there are a number of references, particularly to prophets in the Old Testament. And over and over, I found that the prophets were talking to God in a way of saying, God, 
who could stand? Uh, who could stand? Amos, one of the minor prophets, says, who, he who handles the bow shall not stand. In other words, he who has so many gifts to be able to do things can't even stand before you. Nahum 1.6, who can stand before his indignation? Malachi 3.2, who can stand when he appears? Isaiah, the same way, one of the largest prophetic books. When he, he's before God, his knees buckle. It's like one of those toys. You know those toys that you push the bottom of them? And at first they're standing straight and you push the bottom and they just kind of collapse like this on the bottom. It's almost the language of what we're seeing here is who can stand when it's pushed. That is what it's like. No amount of strength on one side, no amount of strength that we have can hold us up amongst the iniquities that we have that are marked. And no amount of, of that can stand before God who is so perfect and holy compared to that. But here's what's beautiful in verse four. But with you, there's forgiveness. But with you. Anytime there's a, there's a, there's a but, a conjunction, there's a major Hebrew just element right there, but you. It's a turning point, a complete turning point in the psalm that forgiveness is there. But with you, there is forgiveness. And it reaches any depth. That's the point, is that no matter what, this forgiveness reaches any depth. In in fact, the Hebrew word for forgive means lift off here. It means to lift off that weight. So to the degree that we feel and experience and know and see and tangibly run into and and brush up against the depth of what we go, oh God, out of the depths, even more so God reaches. He can go further beyond it. He can go below it, underneath it. This is what struck Martin Luther even in his own heart from Romans chapter five, verse 20. This is echoes into the New Testament. It says, now the law came to end to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. All the more, grace abounded. Oswald Chambers wrote it this way. I love it. He says, he's a, he's a theologian that writes often about these things. He has written often about this. The bedrock of Christianity is repentance. Strictly speaking, a man cannot repent when he chooses. Repentance is a gift from God. The old Puritans used to pray for the gift of tears. If ever you cease to know the virtue of repentance, you are in darkness. That means you're still in the depths. Examine yourself and see if you've forgotten how to be sorry. To examine yourself first to know your sin, but even more so. So to the degree that you're willing to admit and know those depths of your own heart, is even more so to the degree that you will and know experience the mercy of forgiveness that reaches and lifts off the weights that we cannot. That the marking of the iniquities, that if he should mark iniquities, who could stand? Notice if God actually kept that. What forgiveness also is, is a, is a wiping out. When I was in seminary, um, one of my, uh, back in Dallas actually, when I took a class or, or two there, um, I took uh, Hebrew and Greek there. And the professor that gave us Hebrew and Greek was this incredibly uh, genius man um, named Elliot Green. And at the time, he, he knew like 11 or 12 languages, one of those kind of guys. And he would stand at the board so brilliant, he would stand at the board and start writing. And then all of a sudden, he would write in another language. 
like German or something random, you know, instead of writing English for all of us normal people. And we're like, hey, 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 we, we don't know what you're doing because his brain would shift into those linguistic gears. And we're like, hey, hey, and he was like, oh, sorry. We're like, yeah, you're so cool because you know everything. Um, but he was that intelligent. He would write that much. Well, I remember it was the first day of Hebrew and um, first week, that is, of Hebrew. And we had a quiz uh, midway through the week. And he said, okay, today's quiz is, as you've learned vocabulary, what is the word for forgiveness? What's the word for mercy in Hebrew? And we're all like, he goes, go. You got, you got 10 minutes. Just one, one word. This is your thing. And uh, none of us, I mean, we're looking around. We're looking at each other like, what, I, don't, I don't know what this is, you know. <laughs> Great. And he stops. He writes it on the board. It's the word hesed. This is profound mercy. That's what it means in, in Hebrew. He said, what did y'all write? And we're like throwing out, we're like making up words, you know. And he says, everybody write this word on your paper so you can learn it. And he says, write at the top of your paper A. And whatever you've written there, mark out whatever you've written and put this over it. And, and, and then he proceeded to give us like a 10, 15 minute sermon in Hebrew about hesed. And the entire class myself was just bawling. crying. So yes, a nerd crying in Hebrew class, hearing about grace. That is exactly what this means. It means that all of us have tried our best. We've looked at each other. We are tried to, but God has literally, whatever grade you have, whatever you think you need to earn, he has literally put his over it. And that may sound very elemental to you. But as much as it sounds elemental, that is to the degree we live. We still are trying to earn it. See, forgiveness isn't penance. And it's not even repentance. Penance is what we typically think we need to earn for. Penance, being penitent, in fact, this psalm is called a penitential psalm, meaning it's one that turns us to God, but it doesn't mean penance. Some of you may have grown up in a tradition, be it uh, Catholic or otherwise, that talks about penance. Uh, maybe another tradition that has told you penance. And maybe even if you didn't, we try and live that way. What penance is, is trying to be sorry enough to earn God's favor. None of us can be sorry enough to do that. There's no amount of tears, no amount of guilt on yourself, no amount of weight of your sin that you can feel that can warrant God's forgiveness. The depths that we cry isn't for us to say, I feel sorry enough. The depths that we cry is because he's the one that can lift it off. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is different. Repentance is a turning. It means we're turning from both the bad things, yes, and the good things to Jesus. We're turning to God to lift it off because he is the only one. And here's what I think is beautiful. He says, but with you is there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Why in the world? You wouldn't think, I wouldn't think this. If I was reading this psalm, but with you there is forgiveness that that we can have a kind, wonderful relationship with you. Or so maybe we'd put something else in there. But it says, but that you may be feared. Why in the world? That seems antithetical, but it says feared because here's, here's the deal. You don't really know if you're forgiven if you aren't really known. If you're not really known to the depths, even maybe further than you're able to cry out, 
you're not really known there, then you're not really forgiven. See, God's forgiveness isn't contingent upon your voice of being able to even cry out to those depths. It's to the depths of how he knows you and the ways that you can't even put language on. And that's what's so amazing about his grace, right? The song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Isn't that the walk-up song we want? Isn't that what we really need? Not something that just pumps us up. Not something that, that heaps on guilt, but something that lifts off. That's what changes our life. So that's what we have now. That's, that's the forgiveness. That's why fear is so important here because that fear, this is a God who knows you in ways that you may not even know yourself. And that's fearful. And yet he forgives you. This is why forgiveness and fear go together so beautifully. Because you need to have a God that knows every square inch of your heart and life in order for your whole life to be turned upside down. In order for it to be all lifted off. In order for, for forgiveness to be actual forgiveness. And that is yours right now. See, and here's what's interesting. In verse five, then it goes, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. Wait a minute. Okay, I thought forgiveness is now. In fact, the language for, but with you there is forgiveness means forgiveness is now. It's immediate. But then it moves to this waiting. What is, the, what, what is this waiting part? My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Here's the thing. There's waiting. There's fear and forgiveness that go together. Forgiveness is now. It is yours immediate. But there is a waiting for redemption. Now, redemption and forgiveness are different. It was interesting for me to go back and really study again redemption. Because we use that word a lot. Maybe you've heard it. Uh, in even business terms. What is redemption? And to go back and pour over it in commentaries and do some deeper study again, just to remind me, okay, I know redemption, but why forgiveness and redemption? Why, why are we waiting for redemption, but forgiveness is now? Forgiveness is immediate. Redemption, notice, they're not waiting for forgiveness. They're waiting for God to come. See, what the psalm is saying is, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. They're waiting for him to come and complete it. See, redemption is a word that means purchase. It means to release. In the business term, it was used in business terms all throughout the Middle East and in this time to buy back. And during this time, they knew forgiveness was theirs because they had the temple, they did sacrifices. They often did sacrifices that reminded them that forgiveness is now, it is immediate. It's not down the road, but that redemption is still not yet to come. Redemption is something when God comes and completes it. He comes and frees them completely from all the oppression, from all of it. And there's an expectation here. It's not a waiting. And this is probably one of the worst. Is this not one of the worst things you can hear in the Bible? Wait, just wait. It's the, one of the worst things you can hear at all. Just wait. I mean, if we're ever, I mean, has there ever been a time where is there, there's been a hurry up and wait life culture, you know, as of right now? It is the most unnerving, annoying thing. I hate it. Everything is plan, plan, plan. No, throw that out the window. Oh yeah, we're going to school? No, we're not going to school. 
Oh yeah, we're doing that. I mean, my nephew, my neighbor, they're bo- both going to college. They're leaving today. <laughs> and like their plans for a normal college existence is already so different. Half classes online. Some of you are here that may be attending grad school, undergrad work, maybe classes in, in, in uh, middle school, high school, grade school. And, and you're all having to talk about what, what does this look like? Waiting is terrible. It's not fun. But the waiting here is a different kind of waiting than what's going to happen. It's an expectation. Rather than, are we, is this the new normal everybody talks about? Waiting here is an expectation. Listen, he says, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. There's an expectation that the sun will rise. It's, It's connecting to a watchman who would watch over the city for any dangers. And to the degree they had to expect and look and keep their eyes peeled for anything out there, their greater expectation was that the sun would rise and the new day would begin. And the light would shine on everything there. I remember when I was a kid um, in my house uh, in Dallas and <clears throat> I would sleep in uh, my bed and my, as my dad would come home um, from work, and it was dark outside, I'd see lights on the ceiling. And so I knew, and in, in oftentimes I'd see as cars would pull down our street, there'd be lights that kind of move across the ceiling. Well, I'd hop up in the window and I'd look through the, look through the window. And, oh man, it's just a car pulling down the street because sometimes those lights just tricked me. But then there was those ones that would come on and then stop and I'd hop up and there was the car in the driveway and the lights were on the ceiling and they were there and there was that expectation. I'd run, I'd be so excited. I'd run out of my bed, run downstairs, jump in his arms. I was so thrilled to have him home. And that's the expectation. It's a waiting, it's a difficulty, it's hard. And sometimes we, we're in the mode of looking and, and anticipating for God to come and completely redeem. And then other times it feels like it's so distant. Henry Nouwen, who um, was not only a theologian, but really struggled a lot in his own heart of waiting. He really struggles. I've been very honest. If you've read any of his books, Henry Nouwen has written a lot about his own heart connecting to uh, his relationship with the Lord. He says this beautifully, waiting is essential to the spiritual life, but waiting as a disciple of Jesus is not an empty waiting. It is a waiting with a promise in our hearts that makes us already present for what we are waiting for. We wait for Advent, for the birth of Jesus. We wait after Easter for the coming of the Holy Spirit and after the ascension, that is Jesus going up into heaven, we wait for his coming again in glory. We're always waiting. We are always waiting. But it's with a waiting in conviction that we have already seen God's footsteps. Waiting for God is an active, alert, and yes, joyful waiting. It's an expectation. It's a practice, actually. It's a waiting for God, and it's crying out, God, come, come back. Redeem us. Bring us out of this pit. Take us out of this thing. Purchase us again. Release us. See, here's the beauty of redemption. In this psalm, the psalmist is not seeing what we actually have gotten to see. Have you noticed this? The psalmist 
my soul waits. Now, and as we, were, we meet as a staff every Monday and our staff talks about the passage. One of the things was drawn up because I love to hear other people's take on and questions on the passage more than myself. And one of the things that was brought up is that this psalm begins really low and then it just, it ends so high even in the waiting for redemption. And yet here's what's happening. The the expectation is not even fully met in this psalm. And yet what we get to see is that we get to see that this expectation has been fulfilled. See, here's what's amazing about this psalm. It points us to this table, a reality of redemption. Redemption is this, that the person purchasing is doing this all at the cost of himself. And when the Bible talks about redemption, it could talk about it in any kind of terms, but specifically when it talks about God redeeming his people, it says it in this way. It says that there's freedom secured by a payment of price. In other words, that means that it is at the cost of the one who redeems because there's in no way can the people pay back. And what this table says to us is this. It says to us what the psalmist was longing for. They were longing to see when would that release happen? And guess what? You and I get to taste it. The wait is over. The wait is over that the the Messiah has come, the one who has set the captives free. And yet, you know what the struggle is? We're still waiting for him to come back. Notice in that Psalm, it says, in your word, I do hope, right? If he said he's come once and he has fulfilled it, he's gonna come again and he's gonna make it all right. If we can trust that you're tasting the fulfillment of that expectation, that song, that, is, that tune that is sung over you as you can rest at night peacefully, even knowing that there's so much anxiety and difficulty surrounding you, that this is his song over you. And it will blast in our ears when he returns again. <clears throat> it will blast in our hearts Take it up. This is the cost to himself, his body and blood that is in Jesus Christ. You are tasting the full weight of God's forgiveness and mercy lifted off you and put on another until he comes again to set it all right. We get to taste an appetizer of it.